Well, good morning. My name is Jacob Yarbrough. I serve as one of the elders here, and uh, I'm going to read the scripture passage this morning. It's from the book of Haggai, Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And I invite you to follow along with me if you have a copy of God's word with you. Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land. Take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Once more, in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all the nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I shall give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And may God bless the reading of this word. How, how are we doing this morning? Are we cool? We're doing okay? Uh, but I hope you had a great weekend. It's been a beautiful weekend. Amen. But let us, let, let us just kind of bow in a word of prayer, and then we will jump into the book of Haggai this morning. Uh, Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for uh, my church. I thank you just for my people. Uh, Lord, I thank you for what you're doing here. I thank you for what you're doing in our personal lives and us as a church. I pray that this morning that we would spur one another on toward love and good deeds, that we would do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility regard one another as more important than ourselves. I pray that the Spirit of God would be here and be our teacher. And Lord, I just pray that we would uh, learn from the example of Zerubbabel in the book of Haggai. And we lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. I just would like to begin with a question this morning. Uh, how many of you uh, want to do the will of God? Want to do, to do his will? Okay, good. So the people who didn't raise their hands, they're sleeping already. It's cool. Uh, I had somebody say, Byron, if I fall asleep this morning, it's not you, it's me. I say, okay, well. Um, but what are, what, what's required in order to follow God? In order to truly fulfill his mission for our life. What, what, what kind of attributes, what kind of traits must we have in order to fulfill his will for our life? I'm asking. Love. What else? Courage. Very good. What else? Humility. Discipleship. What else? Discipline. Yeah. What else? Yeah. But there's one that was actually mentioned that we often overlook. There's one that is absolutely critical and important for us to follow and fulfill the will of God that he has for us in any season of life. Matter of fact, it's the trait that we see in Haggai chapter 2 verses 1 through 9. It is given to a man named Zerubbabel and Joshua in the city and the people of the land of Israel that they need one particular characteristic, one trait in order to fulfill and 
follow the will of God. And what is it? What is that critical component that we each must have in order to fulfill God's will for our life? It is found in the book of Haggai, Haggai chapter 2. If you have your Bible, go to Haggai chapter 2 this morning. Uh, Haggai, we'll be going from verses 1 through 9 in chapter 2. Also, if you have a hard copy Bible, I encourage you to put one finger in Ezra chapter 5, verse 1. We'll kind of saddle Ezra 4 and Ezra 5. And as we'll talk about here in just a moment, the book of Ezra is the historical context for the book of Haggai. Uh, Last week we talked about finding God's mission. This week I want to talk to you about following God's mission. This is, uh, I believe, the fifth week or fourth week in our series in the Minor Prophets. We're looking at three different Minor Prophets in the fall. We're looking at Obadiah, looking at Haggai, and then we will finish this series with the book of Malachi. And if you were here, we took two weeks to go through the book of Obadiah. And that was probably like a fire hose to everybody in this room, including yours truly. We spent two weeks going through the book of Obadiah. And what is the word that describes Obadiah as a whole? It is the issue of what? Pride. Remember, that is one of only two Old Testament books written not to the Jews. It's written to Edom. And if you remember, the core issue to the nation of Edom was pride. And the root of their pride was twofold. It was a false sense of security. And number two, a, uh, a sense of bitterness towards the nation of Israel. And then last week we began our time in the book of Haggai. Haggai is the prophet that gives the prophecy to a man named Zerubbabel. In a word, the, the minor prophet of Haggai, in a word, can be described as mission. And what is the mission in the book of Haggai? It is to what? To rebuild the temple. Pause for just a moment. I want you to imagine you're the man named Zerubbabel. Your name means the seed of Babylon. I really have no idea why his mother named him that. Um, but he is the grandson of the final king of Israel. Imagine you're Zerubbabel. You have lived most of your life in Babylonian captivity. You have returned from Babylon and you go to your home country. You go to your home city of Jerusalem. And what do you find? Miserable, you find things in ashes. The walls are torn down. The city of Jerusalem is in dust and in ruin. You find complete destruction. I would imagine he left and it looked good and he came back and it was completely destroyed. How many of you are parents in the room? Okay. You might see where I'm going with this. How many of you ever had the experience where you spend all day cleaning? And you go to, go to work and you come back and what do you find? Your house is completely and totally destroyed. Anybody ever found that experience before? That's kind of the impression I see from Zerubbabel. He leaves the city of Jerusalem. He leaves his homeland. He goes to the country of Babylon. He then arrives and everything is in a complete mess. He then went to the city of David to the site of the old temple. And what does he find? He doesn't find Solomon's temple anymore, but he finds it completely and totally gone. It is completely leveled to the ground. Solomon's temple and all of its opulence is just completely and totally in ashes. And here you are. You're Zerubbabel. You're the last heir of the throne. Your grandfather was the last king of Judah that was taken into Babylonian captivity. And then God places upon you a mission to put it all back together. You know, he has all but ashes, and his job is to put the nation back together and to build the temple. 
But what I love about Zerubbabel is that he starts small. We'll see this more in just a moment. But he doesn't begin with the temple. He begins with a pile of stones and an altar so that he could actually begin to make sacrifices day and night to the Lord. He has a mission, but he starts small. This is a little bit of a rabbit trail for just a second. But if the Lord calls you to something, if the Lord asks you to follow him in a ministry or to lead or to begin to disciple your children or to share your faith with a child, whatever calling he places upon your life, start small. I think when we follow God, we start a ministry, we we have kind of delusions of grandeur. We hope it's the biggest and the baddest and the best. You might attract with me on that, but start small. Start with just a pile of rocks like Zerubbabel. So when we come into Haggai chapter 1, his mission is to rebuild the temple And the historical context is in Ezra chapter 3. And so Zerubbabel and his partner Joshua set out on this mission. And as we saw last week, in order to accomplish the mission of God, in order to accomplish what God has for you in your life or in your season of life, you must do first three things. I see seven different principles in the book of Haggai. In order to accomplish God's mission, principle number one is to listen for the mission. Verse 3, God comes to Zerubbabel, to Joshua, and to the nation of Israel, and he says, You are more concerned with building your homes than my house. So they must listen for the mission. Principle number two is that they should reprioritize their life. And if you remember that there's a curse upon the land uh, out of uh, kind of foreshadowing or coming out of the book of Deuteronomy in verses 5 and 6, and then principle number three that we saw last week in Haggai chapter 1 is to look for God's supply. What does God do to Haggai? What does he do to the nation of Israel? He says, go rebuild my temple. And oh, by the way, there's wood up there on the mountains. Go and get it in order to build my house. And so if you have your text, notice with me, I want to point out principle number four. In order to accomplish God's mission, it is this. We should expect opposition. We should expect opposition. That any time... You truly desire to follow God. What should you always expect in return? You should expect something bad to happen. Some kind of opposition to the task and to the mission at hand. Um, but where do I get that from? Where, where, do I, where do I get this idea from? We, we don't really see it in the book of Haggai. There's no sense of opposition. There's confusion. There's a sense of excitement because the Spirit of the Lord is working amongst the people. But where do we see this sense of opposition? It's in Ezra chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, if you kept your place there, go to Ezra chapter 4. What we see in the book of Ezra, Ezra 1 through 6, is the historical context for the book of Haggai. So if you see in Ezra chapter 1, begins our study with Cyrus. And then what we see in Ezra chapter 4 and 5, we see actually two different seasons of opposition. Friends, when you follow God, you should expect opposition. Let me just say that again. When you follow the Lord, you should expect people to resist you. Don't let that deter you from following the Lord. Just come to expect it. I'm going to take it a step further, this principle, that when you face opposition, be encouraged. Because where the Lord is working, what? So is the enemy. 
But where should we expect opposition from? We should expect it from two different sources. We should expect it from unregenerated men, mankind, and we should expect it from the enemy. What does the Bible say? From, from the natural man, it says that the, the Bible says that the things of God are foolishness to the natural, unregenerated man. So we should not be surprised when mankind rebels against the mission, against the vision that God has given us. We should not be surprised when our culture redefines some of our core doctrines and values, such as marriage or gender. We should not be surprised when the Lord, when we try to follow God and people in our life resist the call. We should be encouraged. But also, number two, we should expect opposition not just from mankind, but also from the enemy. From, what does he call him in the scripture? He calls him the thief, the tempter, the ruler of demons, the god of this age, the evil one, the liar, the great deceiver. That we should expect people to reign on our parade whenever we try to follow the Lord. Because that's exactly what happens in the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 1. What happens? This is the historical context for the book of Haggai. Ezra chapter 1, king of Cyrus, the king of Persia, uh, the Lord comes to him, speaks to him and says, send my people back to the land of Israel to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. That's Ezra chapter 1. So Cyrus then sends Zerubbabel and a whole bunch of people that we see in Ezra chapter 2 back to the nation to begin rebuilding it. And then in Ezra chapter 3, what happens, Zerubbabel then lays the foundation of the temple, and then the people become excited. And then in Ezra chapter 4, what happens? The people of the land, these people that were there when Zerubbabel arrived from, from Babylon, these people of the land desired to help out and help build, rebuild the temple. And then when Zerubbabel says, hey man, you got nothing to do with us? And then what do they do in return? They send a letter to King Artaxerxes, the next king of Persia. And then King Artaxerxes reads this letter. And the letter basically says to King Artaxerxes, Oh, the, the people that are building your temple in Ezra chapter 3, these people, as soon as you let them finish the temple, as soon as you let them finish the city walls, they won't pay you taxes anymore. And so then what happens in Ezra chapter 4? Notice it with me. Verse 23 is where we will pick up within the historical context of the book of Haggai. Then as soon as the copy of King Artaxerxes' document, so a letter was sent to Artaxerxes in Ezra 4, and now a document has come back to the nation of Israel and was read before Rehem and Shimshai. I struggle with those two. The scribe and their colleagues, verse 24 of Ezra 4, they then went in haste to Jerusalem, to the Jews, and stopped them by force of arms. Then the work on the house of God in Jerusalem had ceased. They laid the foundation. They haven't even began the framing yet for the temple, and it's already stopped. And it was stopped until the second year. Notice this chronological Reference The second year of the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. What does it say in Haggai chapter 1, verse 1? It says this, In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel. So the end of chapter 4 is the exact context of Haggai. So the temple has stopped, has ceased because of a letter and the foundation is sitting there. How many of you have ever seen um, 
a house being built, and all you saw was a foundation of a house. Have you ever seen that before? Okay, when I was building my home, that was a phase. So that's all they have at this particular moment. And so the temple stops, and then verse chapter 5, verse 1, is where we pick up in Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. When the prophets, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edu, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of, of God of Israel, who was them, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shittil, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So despite the first round of opposition, Zerubbabel picks himself back up, begins to obey the Lord, begins to rebuild the temple the historical context tells me, quite frankly, is that if you truly try to follow the Lord, you should expect things to people to resist the idea. And you should be encouraged by that. That is the historical context of Haggai chapter 2. So now flip back to Haggai chapter 2. This is Ezra, Ezra 1 through 6, is the context of the book of Haggai. And today we're going to go from Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. The fifth principle I see to accomplish God's mission is this. Number four is to expect opposition. But then number five is to what? To be courageous. To follow God. Let me just... How many of you... uh, If you're a Christian, then I know it happened at least once. um, How many of you have ever... Follow the Lord and, and a calling he's given to you, whether it is to come to the Lord or to go into full-time ministry or to, to share the gospel with your child. I mean, how many of you have ever followed God in that respect? What's always the emotion accompanied with that? Fear, right? There's a sense of tension and a little bit of nervousness. So if you notice in your text with me, principle number five is to be courageous, To follow God's will. Haggai 2 verse 1 says this. On the 21st of the seventh month, about a month later after Haggai chapter 1 verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shittil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem like nothing in comparison? Verse 4. But now, notice what he repeats three different times. And he repeats the same thing to each group of people. But now, take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. So in order to follow God, in order to accomplish His will, they and we today must be courageous. Why? Notice in your text, verse 3. Reason number one we should be courageous is because comparisons don't matter in God's eyes. Verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem like nothing in comparison? It would be, hey, it would be really easy for Zerubbabel to be discouraged at this particular moment in time. Because what does he have? He All he has now is the foundation of the temple that was ceased. And then in chapter 1, he begins to put the framing up. 
Okay? So that's all he's got to this point. So it would be a little bit easy to be discouraged when all you have to your rinky-dink temple in his eyes would be a foundation and the framing. What is he saying? Verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory, and how do you see it now? Does it not seem like nothing in comparison? Who is he in comparison? He's going to be saying, don't compare your temple with Solomon's temple. Because it would be real easy to be discouraged. Uh, how many of you have seen um, the TV show at, on MTV? I don't watch MTV, but I did back in the day, I guess. Uh, the MTV show Cribs. Anybody remember that show? Am I dating myself? Okay, everybody okay? Cool. Um, what that show is, is it basically takes a camera crew into really fancy homes. I mean, like, you know, they have, like, alligators and, like, tigers in their backyard, like Mike Tyson, okay? So they go into these really rich people's homes, these celebrities' homes, and they show you what, how they live. Why is that show popular? Or was, okay? It's probably not popular anymore. I'm dating myself here. Um, probably was probably debuted before uh, people were born in this room okay i'm dating myself um but why was this show popular envy jealousy and then we watch shows like that it's easy to feel discouraged in comparison god is telling zerubbabel don't worry about solomon's temple don't worry about his opulence you just obey me just obey me here and now. Why? Because comparisons don't matter to the Lord. What matters to the Lord is obedience to the will of God. Zerubbabel's temp- temple is nothing in comparison. Solomon's temple, let me describe it to you very briefly. I believe this is in 1 Kings 6 and 7. Solomon's temple was 60 feet in length, 30 feet in width, 50 feet in height. The walls were made of cedar with carved images of cherubim and palm trees. The Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple was marked with chains of gold. The floor of the temple was overlaid with gold. Solomon's temple was made with the finest materials, and they spared, as I said, no expense. And you're Zerubbabel. You're 400 years later after this beautiful temple, and after you remember it, standing there, before you left for Babylonian captivity, you're probably a man in your 60s and 70s, and you remember Solomon's temple, and you remember its golden floor. You remember the cedar walls. You remember all of these things, and all you have is um, a foundation and framing. It'd be very discouraging, if I was Zerubbabel, to have that comparison. But what does he say? Be courageous. Be strong. Obey the Lord. Comparisons to God don't matter. Friends, when we are trying to serve the Lord, what's the first thing that gets us discouraged? The numbers. How many rear ends are in the seats? Some say this, and I've heard it again and again. One of a scholar said this. He says, he hears this all the time. My ministry is so insignificant and my group is so small that I don't think it amounts to very much. And he goes on, my friend, if that is what you are thinking It is the devil who is talking to you. Don't listen to him. It is God who is going to put the measuring rod down on it and determine who is great and who is not. There are a whole lot of straw stacks being built today, and they look impressive, yet God makes it clear that size is not the most important thing. 
So we should be courageous. We should not worry about comparisons. But then reason number two why we should be courageous is found in verse 4, that Yahweh Sabaoth is with them. Notice verse 4, but now take courage, Zerubbabel declares the Lord, take courage, also Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work. Get up, be courageous, and fulfill the mission he has given to them. And work. Why? Because comparisons don't matter to God, but also because I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. The reason they should fulfill the will of God is because God is with them. And it's not just any God. Do you notice what he calls himself? He says, the Lord of hosts. That word, that phrase, is actually just two Hebrew words in the original language. That phrase is used 14 times in the 38 verses of the book of Haggai, and it's just two Hebrew words. First, the word means Lord. It means, as you probably have guessed, it would mean Yahweh. You know, I am who I am, the God of all gods, the self-sustaining, self-existent one, Yahweh, the God who holds the waters of the world in the palm of his hand and marks off the heaven by the span, Yahweh, the God that numbers the hairs of our head, Yahweh, the God who created us to be fearfully and wonderfully made, that God, the God, the one true God is with him, the Lord, and then this last word is the word host, which is the Hebrew word Sabaoth. It's not Sabbath, it's Sabaoth, which means the God of armies, the God ready to act. So what is he saying to Zerubbabel? Hey, man, I know you, all you got right now is the foundation and the framing. I know you remember Solomon's temple, but don't worry about that one. Just fulfill what God has asked you to do, number one. Number two, and if you do, if you work, if you obey the calling of God, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, is with you. But then notice in your text, verse 5. So principle number 5, be courageous. Comparisons, Yahweh Sabaoth is with you. And then reason number 3 is that God is faithful. That God is faithful. Past, present, and future. Notice in your text with me, verse 5, there is a past tense and present tense. Let me just give you a little uh, nerd glimpse behind the curtain for just a second. Almost every minor prophet outlines into three sections, what was, what is, and what will be. Most of the time, what will be is eschatological. Verse 5, as for the promises I made you when you came out of Egypt. Not the promises that I've given to you, Zerubbabel, or even to your grandfather who was the last king of Judah, but the promises that I made you when, I, when you came out of Egypt. This is the past tense. He's saying that remember my faithfulness to you and to your nation in the past. That God is faithful, and you've seen it in the past, in the very least, when you came out of Egypt. Um, Let me just ask you the question. Um, When the Lord calls you to do something, when the Lord asks you to do something, when the Lord asks you to be part of a ministry or to follow him onto a mission trip or to be a missionary or to... You know, follow him to full-time ministry or to go, like I shared last week, to seminary. When, when this happens, what should you remember? What should you always put as a marker in the sand? His past faithfulness. Friends, let me ask you a question. How has God shown his faithfulness to you? What is a past event that God has showed you his faithfulness with? 
Uh, I shared a story last week about my seminary days. Uh, I could even tell you just in the last year of being the pastor of Calvary Bible Church that there has just been event after event after event of God showing up in his faithfulness. And it would take me hours to share all of the stories just in the kind of the last year of how the Lord has showed up. I mean, the staff one particular day was just like panicked. And then like literally later that day, the Lord just answered that worry of ours literally within 24 hours and i would encourage you for this particular thing right here you know how has the lord shown his faithful to you to you in the past and i would encourage you to set up stones set up monuments set up memorials it, it, it shares i believe in the book of joshua or the book of numbers you have to forgive me for this i don't remember off the top of my head but once they crossed the jordan river what did they do they set up an altar set up a stones so that when does it say that when you pass these stones what does it say tell your children what happened here so that you don't forget. God is faithful. So be courageous. Why? Because we've seen his faithfulness in the past. But then they also see it in the present. My spirit is abiding in your midst. What time frame is that? It's present. So then what does it say? Do not fear. We see God's faithfulness here in the, in the present. That the spirit of God is abiding in your midst. And what has it done in the book of Haggai? It has stirred up the nation, stirred up the crowds, gotten them to fulfill the mission of God. Keep in mind, the spirit of God didn't anoint people in the Old Testament. It didn't actually indwell people in the Old Testament. It came upon people, and today it is in his people. That's why David says in Psalm 51, what? Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. There was anointing, but not in a permanent indwelling. So we see here, God, to be courageous, why? Because God is faithful, seen in Egypt, seen in the present with the gift of the Holy Spirit to the nation of Israel to accomplish the mission of God. But then we also see it in the future. This is future tense, in my opinion. Well, it says in first, second phrase there. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, the God of armies, the God ready to act. Once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all nations. Notice that. And they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Haggai chapter 2, verse 9. Here we see the future faithfulness of God. When did that happen? What does it say in Haggai chapter 2, verse 6? Very once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. The sea also and the dry land, I will shake all nations. And they will come with the wealth of all nations and will fill this house up with glory. I, I, when, I, when, when I look at my Bible, when I look at history, I don't think that's been fulfilled yet. But that is a promise given to the nation of Israel, which tells me a couple different things. It tells me that there is still a future hope for the nation of Israel, that the church has not replaced Israel, that the future promises given to the ethnic people of Israel will still come to pass. And if you notice in verse 7, it says, I will shake all the nations and will come with the wealth of all nations. What does that sound like? When I was studying this passage, it sounded like Obadiah. 
It sounded like this is describing in verse 7 the day of the Lord, which is a judgment, what? That's going to go through the seven years of tribulation and through the millennial kingdom. That there is a thousand seven year period of judgment upon the world during the millennial kingdom and in the great tribulation culminating in the great white throne of judgment. And then notice, continue on, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. It's not theirs. It's mine. And gold is mine, declares the Lord. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. What's the problem with that, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. What's the problem with that? That I don't see that fulfilling, being fulfilled in history or in my scripture. But what's the problem even today? That there is no house. How many of you have ever been to Israel before? You might know what I'm talking about. What's there? What's on the Temple Mount currently? Yeah, you have Herod the Great who took Zerubbabel's temple, jazzed it up a little bit, right, and made this really ornate, opulent temple. And then what happens in 70 AD? The Romans come in and completely level it. So we see this promise that the Lord will fulfill, will fill up the temple with his glory, but there is no temple. So when will this happen? We know, or at least we think, if you're kind of of the eschatological framework that I am, so I believe all of this, verses 6 through 9, is talking about eschatology, is technically in the future, that I believe that the temple will be rebuilt, amen, during the seven years of tribulation, then what will happen halfway through, there will be the abomination of desolation, and then what will happen? Then the seven years, and then the Lord will descend. He will rule on his earth for a thousand years in his millennial kingdom. And that is when the glory of the Lord will then fill the temple. And then all of the promises that are unfulfilled to the nation of Israel will take place. That there is a people of God, and then there is a nation of God. And the promises that we see in Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, haven't been fulfilled yet. Therefore, we believe that they will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. Okay. All of the promises to Zerubbabel will be fulfilled. All of the promises given to Joshua, the high priest, will be fulfilled. All of the promises given to the nation of Israel will be fulfilled. Catch this. And if you're a child of God, all of the promises that God has given you will be fulfilled. Why? Because God is Yahweh Sabaoth. He is I am who I am. He is a supreme being, is a self-existent one, the self-sustaining one. I am who I am, that he is the one true God who keeps all of his promises. He is Yahweh and he is Sabaoth. He is the God of armies ready to act on behalf of his people. So be, woke y'all up. All right. So be courageous. Be courageous. Do not fear. Don't worry about other things in other churches. Boop. Preaching to myself there. Don't worry about comparing yourself. Don't worry about what you don't have. God will supply. Don't worry about it. Because God is faithful. Seen in the past, seen in the present, and seen in the future. So then, be courageous. Follow the Lord. My question for you is this, as we wrap up. Our time is so what? To accomplish God's will, first we must listen, reprioritize, look, then we should expect opposition, and then we should be courageous. My question for you is this, so what? How am I responding to God today? 
Um, the first part of my application is the same as it was last week. What is God calling you to do? What is a mission he is asking you to fulfill? I think sometimes when, we, when I ask that question, we think about, you know, I've got to go sell all my possessions and move to the Amazon and be a missionary. I mean, you could. Um, that's fine. I'll, I'll support you if that's God's will. Um, but I think sometimes we have this bigger picture than God is even asking us to have. Sometimes God just wants us to do something simple right in front of us. Like building a temple. It's not simple, but like, for example, um, what is the mission that God is calling you to do? Where is he asking you to follow him? Some of us here today, the Lord is asking you to just follow him by sharing the gospel with a child or with a coworker. Some of us here today, God is just asking you to serve or to start or be part of a ministry. Some of you here today uh, might go into full-time ministry, might end up on the mission field. Maybe some of you here today, God is asking you to go on a mission trip this year. I don't know. I'm not God. It would be a weird place if I was. It would be terrible, okay? Um, Praise the Lord, I had nothing to do with the deity, okay? But what is the mission that God is asking you to do? And then number two, what, what should you expect? You should expect opposition, and then you should also be courageous, You should not worry about comparison. You should remember who God is, and you should remember his faithfulness to you in the past. My question for you is is this. What is the mission, and will you follow it? First one you have to answer is the same one we saw last week. God is asking Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple, and then the question is, what is he asking of you? How does God speak to us today? He speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through his spirit. He speaks to us through circumstances, and he speaks to us through other believers. How is God speaking to you? What is he asking you to do? If you can't answer that, then go be alone with the Lord. Go for a walk. I've been hiking on Green Mountain the last couple of weeks. It's awesome up there. Just go do something. Go spend time with the Lord. Go read your Bible. And then the second question is, will you be courageous? Um, but some of you here today, the Lord is not asking you necessarily to sell all your possessions to go build a temple, but maybe to some of us here today, the Lord is just asking us to be courageous by believing in him as Savior. Uh, Maybe you've thought that you're a Christian. Maybe you've become, maybe you've been to church a long time, but you, and so you're kind of afraid to really surrender your life and to be baptized and tell people exactly that you're a Christian, that you're a believer because you're afraid of what people might say. You might say to you, well, I thought you were a Christian 50 years ago. Didn't you, weren't you baptized at one time? You know, some of us just need to be courageous to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. What does the Bible say? That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and what? Believe in your heart, then you shall be saved. If you've never trusted in Christ, maybe that's the mission before you, is to believe in him and you shall be saved. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this morning. I thank you for uh, just Haggai, just this, this practical lesson of what it takes to follow you, how we follow you, And Lord, I just pray for my people that they would listen to what you have asked them to do in their life and that they would follow you boldly and that they would be strong and that they would be able to look at your past, present, and future faithfulness as evidence that you will be faithful to them. Lord, thank you for my people. I thank you for what you're doing here at Calvary. Lord, I just pray that we would love one another. All men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And I pray that that would be 
our legacy and our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.